Hello, welcome to Cinelit. My name is Adam Marsh. Uh, today's episode is all about that new Hollywood cinema movement of the 1960s and 70s and early 80s. It was such a fun conversation we had today that we've ended up having to crash it into two podcasts because one podcast would not contain it. Um, here's part one. I hope you enjoy. Welcome to uh, Cinelit. Uh... We lost count of how many episodes we're in, but our April 2020 edition. Uh, initially, this was going to be a uh, James Bond-themed episode. Um, however, with uh, the Bond film being pushed back to November and causing chaos in the world of film programming, uh, we've hastily pulled together a different podcast for today. Um, we're going to be looking at the new Hollywood movement. It's been 50 years since the release of Five Easy Pieces, and we feel that maybe now's the time to have a look back at New Hollywood, who's celebrating its 50th birthday <laughs> this year. Before we before we kick off, um, let me introduce you to our co-host, um, Rebecca Taylor. Hi. Rebecca is my regular co-host, but from now on, we're going to have a baby joined by a third member of our team. Please welcome Daryl Buxton to our regular cohort of guests. Hello, everyone. So Daryl's going to be joining us on a month-to-month basis now as providing our resident experts. That's what we're billing him as now, a resident expert, Daryl, no pressure. Um, so, yeah, so we're going to kick off with New Hollywood. But before we start, I just want to just maybe establish why we're doing this podcast. Uh, we've called it Cinelit uh, because we, we're discussing around the office uh, cine literacy in films and um, how... With the rise of streaming, there has become an idea of like, well, it doesn't really matter that it goes to cinemas because it's not very cinematic. And people's ideas of what is cinematic and what isn't cinematic, I feel are starting to shift at the moment. And we're trying to combat that a little bit by saying, well, we don't want a certain type of film to be the only films that are in cinemas. Lots of films, for very different reasons, uh, go in cinemas and you get different experiences from those films. Cine literacy. It doesn't have to be all university educated people. And uh, we're here to try and bridge that gap between entertainment and cine literacy, I guess. Yeah. What do you yeah, reckon, guys? Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Okay, so we're, we're, we're tackling New Hollywood today. So, New Hollywood was a period of American cinema from the late 60s through to the early to mid 80s, which was born, I guess, in the dying embers of the Hollywood studio system. Uh, as those films were starting to fail and not do very well, a new breed of directors, a new breed of films were being made and being released into American cinemas to great success. And that became dubbed as the New Hollywood Movement, also known as the American New Wave Movement, um, I guess latching on to the influences from the French New Wave um, and the European New Wave cinemas that was happening uh, throughout the 40s, 50s and 60s. So, uh, yeah, New Hollywood. Let's yeah. get in there. Let's get in knee deep because it's a big topic to cover. Uh, so we're gonna we're gonna kind of take it in a chronological order. So we're gonna start off with like the the, the roots of New Hollywood and the birth. And I know this is a topic that Daryl is very very keen on the, the 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 birth of New Hollywood, the roots of New Hollywood. Very much, yeah, yeah. You've mentioned already the uh, European New Wave, and I I think. Um, a, a big influence on on the the new Hollywood scene, and and let's look at that term new Hollywood initially. Let's explain to people that uh, um, it's very confusing because it suggests that we're talking about new films, and we're not, of course. You know, new Hollywood was a specific um, sort of critical phrase that was used for this batch of films, um, as Adams already said, from the mid sixties through to the early eighties, and 
with with it all kicking off in the mid sixties, one of the big influences was the um, European and, and maybe perhaps specifically the French and Italian uh, new waves. Which is quite fascinating because the the French New Wave was massively influenced by the uh, the Hollywood films oh, yeah, of the nineteen yeah. thirties and forties. You know yeah. the gangster films, yeah. the uh, the noir films. They were almost just like film elite itself, kind of. Like, kind of I, I think I think that works its way through to the um, to the new Hollywood as well. Um, in that the, the the line you've got there is that yeah you've got the the, the guys at KA do cinema and so on. You've got Truffaut and Goddard, and they're they're sort of enamoured by by old Hollywood, you know, uh, vintage classic Hollywood. But they're doing their own little riffs on that. And then the guys in America who are watching those films when they're getting imported are thinking, yeah, we, we can we can make films. You, you don't have to be John Ford or somebody or, or Mitchell Lyson or someone to, to um, or Orson Welles to be able to make a, a big movie, you know. I'm sort of here I am, I've just left university, I'm 18, you know, I want to pick up a camera, I'm going to go and make a film. And what what the French New Wave is telling me is, yes, I can. You know, I think that it is weird how those influences all sort of filter through. And then what, what, what you get with um, some of the more arty side of New Hollywood is almost a combination of, of old Hollywood filtered through the, the, the European New Wave. We'll get on to talk about individual films later, but you look at the work of Bob Raffleson and people uh, uh, in the... Uh, you say Raffleson, I say Raffleson, you know, <laughs> who, who knows. But, uh, you know, this is the guy who created The Monkeys and, and, um, mm-hmm. for, for TV, so that's his, his, what he's most famous for. But he was one of the key figures in, in, the, in the sort of early 70s aspect of all this. And his films would sit very neatly alongside those of uh, Eric Romer, Goddard, people like that. But also, they're on themes that you might well have seen in a, a 1940s drama. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I do find it fascinating that some of those some of those new Hollywood films were imported European directors in the same way as they were imported European directors in the 1930s and 40s that were, were establishing Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. So you had that, so like I say, you had Antonioni going over. I, I guess one of his, I mean, Blow Up was a big key influence on, on, yeah. on, on, on new Hollywood. Yes, And massively. that was a massive influence. Yeah. And then he went over and did Zabriskie Point. For, uh, which I guess you would incorporate in the new Hollywood movie. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, we, we can name the specific films that those movies have influenced there. You know, yeah. there'd be no conversation without without uh, Blow Up. There'd mm-hmm. be no Brian De Palma's Blowout or, or um, a, a, yeah. a lot of De Palma's <laughs> yeah. whole career. I was about to say know, De Palma. Yeah. I was a lot to that. that. So, uh, um, so, and then Zabriskie Point. Sort of, we, we talked about acid westerns in one of our early podcasts, and um, and Zabriskie Point, right, right there. It's not a western, but it's doing the same sort of thing with the same sort of imagery, you know. Yeah, and, and, yeah. uh, and there is there's something in the air there where you've, you've got art films and you've got exploitation films, and they're sort of doing the same thing, and they've sort of got the same influences, and they're often being made by the same people or at least the same crews, you know, and with the same actors passing through them. You know, we're we're sort of jumping ahead a little, but you you know you'll you'll get Warren Oates and Dennis Hopper and people like that appearing in some some piece of trash one week and then making something really arty the next. And you could almost put them on the double bill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And it's sort of like a sense of freedom as well, because obviously we're going away from the studio system, you know, and the controls of that. Um, so it gave actors the opportunity to sort of more decide what they want to do. So, yeah. Yeah, it, yeah. you feel like more creative. They can yeah. control with the director rather than the producers and rather with the, the studios yeah. in that period. Yeah. So boiling that down, Daryl, <laughs> we've not talked about this man yet, but one of the key key people in not just New Hollywood, but I guess Hollywood in the, in the second half of the 20th century uh, is Roger Corman. Beyond Hollywood. Um, you know, I, I, the, for me, the most important, certainly post-war figure in all American cinema. The, the landscape of American cinema, I, I would, would just be desolate if there'd been, if there'd been no Corman. If he'd not decided to produce and direct films in 1953-54 I, I cannot imagine what we would be being presented with as entertainment so within within the birth of, of New Hollywood he played a very significant role in nurturing talent and giving talent opportunities Yeah, yeah. Um, so who, who, who are the key figures that he, he introduced obviously one screams screams out as, yeah, uh, as yeah. Jack Nicholson being oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. The, uh, one yeah. of the key figures think, in New Hollywood. I think what's important here is also to, to explain the reasons why Corman would have done that and I think it's simply that he was given that opportunity and became a reasonable success um, certainly perhaps on the, on the sort of trashy sort of drive-in circuit and so on with the, the, the sort of monster movies and gangster films and things that he was churning out. But he was given a lot of freedom, the word Rebecca's just used, by um, James Nicholson, another Nicholson, mm. and Samuel Z. Arkoff, who were the guys behind uh, American International Pictures. And as long as their films were making money, they sort of let Corman do, do what he wanted and gave him that freedom and... Um, uh, he was incredibly prolific. You know, he made 55 films over about 18 years. And because he was given that freedom and because he wanted to develop into the sort of producer that he saw Nicholson and Arkoff were, when he had the ch chance to do that, rather than simply being a sort of conveyor belt director, I think he took that on board. He He, he sort of thought, well... I was a young kid who was given a chance, you know, let me do that for other people. So, yeah, to go, to go through the list of names, you know, and some people will be aware of this who are listening, but uh, but if, if you look Corman up on Wikipedia, one of the first things that jumps out at you is this paragraph where it's just got this list of names, and it's Ron Howard, Martin Scorsese, Sylvester Stallone, William Shatner, James Cameron, Joe Dante, Nicholson being the big one, you know, and for Corman fans as well, there's like this second tier of the sort of cult names who never made it, but we love, like Jonathan Hayes and, and Dick Miller and uh, and people like that. So, well, Dick uh, Miller's like a recurring a recurring character actor in most of all of these directors that we're going to be talking about. So oh, yeah, films, he yeah, crops yeah, in tomorrow yeah. and all. Well, there's the funny thing, because Corman does that as well. You know, if Jonathan Demme makes a film, or if James Cameron makes a film, or if Ron Howard makes a film, there's, there's quite often a part for Roger Corman. Yeah, yeah. 
and he's normally playing a sort of variation on himself, or they do they do some little gag about him being a sort of penny pinching character, or uh, or a very officious sort of character. You know, it seems they they always do a little gag with him and take one of his characteristics and build it into the little cameo that he does. So yeah, he's in he's in Silence of the Lambs and things like yeah, that. Yeah. You know, and uh, mm. so he's done a bit of acting. But yeah, Miller is is like this sort of iconic. A totemic sort of figure as well, and and it's always great to see either Dick or or Roger himself sort of uh, appear, you know, in 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 one of these mega budget uh, award winning movies. I think we mentioned you mentioned AIP American International Pictures earlier on, and um, I guess I guess feeding into the sort of like uh, the compost <laughs> from which New Hollywood is going to grow, you had AIP bringing over to America. Um, European films. Yeah. Um, I, I guess one of the one of the key uh, moments, I guess, that led to the birth was like the Monopolies Commission mm. saying that studios couldn't own cinemas and the, the mm. whole chain. Yeah. So cinemas started being able to book there were book films from whoever. There was no like you have to take all Paramount films, you have to take all Universal films. So it opened up the opportunity for independent filmmakers to make films and get them shown in cinemas without the construction of, uh, of that studio system, um, of which AIP <laughs> rapidly uh, took advantage oh, of. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're, they're, their own movies are, are sort of, you know, they're full of car chasers and monsters and screaming girls and stuff, but they're importing, like, Bergman films and stuff like exactly. that. Exactly, so. and that, that's got to make a really interesting mix into the psyche of the cinema-goer exactly. in the 50s and 60s where you're yeah. seeing... Bergman, you're seeing Pulp Fiction type films. Yeah. You're seeing those kind that kind of whole mix. It's all becoming part of what you take to be cinema. It's not just the studio message of this is what cinema is. A and B movies, and and the A movies are important, and the B movies are not. It suddenly became well, all movies are important in this mm. period. Um, yeah. You've got Bergman films alongside invasion of the blood-sucking farmers from <laughs> yeah. Mars or whatever yeah. you know, alongside each other. So how do you distinguish what's art and what's not? Yeah. And, and, and this this is also happening at one sort of, at the sort of second tier of American cinema as well, because in the 50s you've still got your big spectacles, you know, you've, you've got your, your, you know, Betty Davis is still around mm. and you've got your Hollywood musical coming through and Hitchcock's making the best work of his career, you know. And and but just under that under that surface, you've got directors like Don Siegel and Joseph H. Lewis who are doing these incredible um, sort of tense, gritty sort of and and arty thrillers that mm. are that are mi- they're, they're doing this mix in a single eighty-minute film. You know, something like The Big Combo or Invasion of the Body Snatchers. You know. Yeah. Big um, Pombo is a fantastic movie, yeah. great noir movie. And, and, and wouldn't that fit right into the French New Wave? Absolutely, But yeah. it would also, you could play that at a drive-in as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. And, and these, these are the sort of American films I'm talking about. So this is all going on as well. And, and this itself has its own influence on New Hollywood. And you can bet Roger Corman was watching those films. Oh, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Let's get let's get to some of the key uh, the key early films then. I guess the one that the one or two that scream out as being landmark moments. I guess we're talking Easy Rider. Yeah, yeah. we're talking Bonnie and Clyde. Um, as there's two of the main ones. Um, and like you said, we've got I don't know. I think that Point Blank. Yeah, yeah. Uh, John Borman, and again a lot of the, the sort of like Hollywood yeah. things that you should mention, Seconds and things like that. Yeah, I'd I'd just jump back maybe a couple of years to start with because. One one name that is going to be like the core, I think, of this discussion is Jack Nicholson. We've mentioned him sure, a couple yeah. of times already, and, and you did suggest 
there, there was a, 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 a possibility that this might have been just a, a it's just a Jack Nicholson, Jack Nicholson yeah. and we've sort of developed it a bit but I think he's the name we're going to keep coming back to very very interesting career he started out as an actor working for Corman and wasn't all that good you know if you watch films like The Terror and, and um, uh, uh, The Raven and things like that those early sort of Boris Karloff films that Corman was doing and Nicholson's pretty terrible in them you know but he then became a very very good writer and he, he was he, he, he was writing things like he wrote the trip for Corman, yeah. which is an amazing sort of drug influenced uh, LSD movie, which which sort of folds back into Corman's Edgar Allan Poe films as well at times. You know, mm. it's a really really weird well trip of a movie. Yeah, and yeah. Nicholson wrote that, and uh, and and then he was working with uh, Bob Rafelson on the the monkey's stuff and on Ed. You know, and. Hollywood sort of perceived him as being, oh, there's this, this, there's this terrible actor, but he's, he's actually developing into a really, really good writer, as were people like Robert Town at the time, you mm. know. And Nicholson, I think, was being seen as, oh, he's, he could be, this kid could be someone that we develop. And then, because of the way this all operated, everyone got their mates into, into their movies, you know. And Hopper and Fonda got the chance to do Easy Rider, and it was like, oh, there's this great part we need an actor for it. Jack, Jack will do, you know. And he comes in, he steals the show, you know. And uh, and his career as an actor finally takes off. So, yeah, I think the trip and head and some of the stuff that Nicholson was writing. And the Wild Angels as well, the Corman film. Yeah. The Peter Fonda one, is yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's people will know the line from that that was sampled in uh, Loaded by Primal Power Scream. Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, Showing our age, yeah, Daryl. Yeah, yeah well, your just, age and my age. Yeah. My age. <laughs> God, that's thirty years ago. <laughs> yeah. That's not new, is it? <laughs> you know, talk about new Hollywood. You know? yeah, yeah. But uh, but yeah, what happens after that is Easy Rider, and then the floodgates open. So um, I mean, you've also got like the Monty Hellman um, things, like the shoot, the shooting, the shooting, and riding and the riding whirlwind, and... which we talked about in when we were talking about Acid West. Sure, yeah, I guess yeah. that's feeding in, but I, I, I guess the, the, the and what what you're getting with those films is you're starting to get the performers that people will know to this day, and some of some of them are, are still working or were working until recently. Yeah, you, you've got people like Warren Oates, Nicholson. Um, Harry Dean Stanton in in those movies, you know, who who had careers of, of decades long, yeah, yeah, and yet here they are taking their first little steps and knocking it out of the park from day one, you know. I guess, I guess Easy Rider also felt like the culmination of a countercultural movement that was happening across mm. uh, across culture and art and cinema and film and and and, and, and music and all, all 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 facets of American life. And this film, I guess, crystallised it in one one moment. And it was a massive, massive success. Um, and there's been arguments over who properly directed it ever since. Um, what was what was the feeling at the time? I mean, I'm not that you were around at the time, now, but <laughs> what what do you feel was like because Dennis Hopper from this film got to do the last movie yeah, we talked yeah. about on the Yodorovsky one of the great movie. acid western it yeah, is yeah. but he shot 70 hours of footage and it was an absolute mess yeah, yeah. and then you had Peter Fonda who was also claiming to direct the film who didn't go on to direct that many films afterwards so who who do we believe <laughs> yeah well I mean, I, I was around at the time. I was, I was seven, so yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I, I, I've not taken an awful lot of LSD. So, yeah. um, But uh, I don't think we'll ever know, frankly, the answer to your question, Adam. Uh, and that's all. that all sort of feeds into the myth of this movie and what, um, and what the, the whole sort of aura of, of Easy Rider is. And 
I almost don't want to know, you know, the, 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 I, I want this to be a film that's come out of the ether. It's the child of the wild angels and the trip, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and Hopper, interestingly, at this time, to bring in old Hollywood for a moment, Hopper had been working with Henry Hathaway quite a lot. He's in a couple of Henry, Henry Hathaway westerns in the late 60s, including True Grit, mm-hmm. um, which he, he does a little five-minute scene with John Wayne, which is absolutely incredible. Hopper doing every single method acting tick that you can possibly want to see, and Wayne standing like like he's made out of stone and not moving, and you don't know which you don't know which one to watch. They're both <laughs> they're both incredible, and it literally it's the best human evocation of that old phrase about an unstoppable force meeting an immovable object yeah yeah and you're seeing that in human form in true grit in that one scene and it's a scene that encapsulates new hollywood sort of trying to come in and old hollywood sort of resisting for a little bit you know you've got this little crossover period in sort of 68 69 where that's happening but i think the fact that hopper had done those westerns is great for easy rider because basically a lot of people have said this it's all shot on sort of classic western locations they're riding their hogs through through places that you'll recognize from western movies and Hopper's wearing a cowboy hat. Yeah, you know? yeah. So Easy Rider is following on from the Monty Hellman films. Is that the breakthrough for the Acid Western? But as a film in New Hollywood, again, it's almost as vital as Corman. In fact, in terms of mainstream recognition, mm. more so. I, I find it fascinating. Obviously, obviously, again, similar. I didn't watch it at the time, and I, I you know, I, I didn't watch it until the nineties. So I'm looking at it as a historical piece when I, whenever I watch. I'm sure it's the same for you, Becky. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and yeah. it encapsulates a certain period of time, mm. which, to be quite frank, I can't really understand because I wasn't there <laughs> to live it and seeing. I wasn't living the roots from which that film was coming out. So, you, so I'm always looking at it from a detached point of view. I'm not sure that's the best. I'm not sure that's what they wanted from the film no, viewer. No. They want you, the film viewer, to be completely absorbed into that into that film. In the same way, the trip you go on the trip, you go on the trip with the, with Easy Rider. I don't think that's as easy to do years later. Yeah. But you know, the great thing about that is that what our generations sort of know and perceive about the '60s is all learned from music and movies. I think, yeah, you yeah. Know? And the music and movies was being produced by these kids. Yeah. So you've got Roger Corman on one hand. And you've got people like, you know, the, the sort of entrepreneurial music producers. Certainly in Britain, you've got these people like Larry Palms um, setting up the whole Billy Fury, Joe Brown thing. And, and then, then you've got Brian Epstein with the Beatles, you know, and Andrew Lou Goldham and people like that. And they're almost like Roger Corman figures in the music industry, you know. So they're, sh- they're shaping the vision of what yeah, we perceive in yeah, the sixties. Yeah. So my dad and, and always, then, yeah, yeah. my dad always says like "Summer of Love" nineteen sixty-seven. It's like, yeah, yeah, "Summer of Love" nineteen sixty-seven didn't happen in Bolton, mate. Yeah, exactly, you know, it exactly. wasn't happening there. Yeah. Yeah. But because we listen to Sergeant Pepper and we watch The Wild Angels and Easy Rider, yeah. and we think, hey, man, it must have been cool being there, you know. And yeah, yeah the reality: not many people were, yeah. but. Um, if you lived in California or, or Liverpool, fine, but you know, not many people did. So yeah, I I slightly disagree with that because obviously I'm much younger, and I, you can see when you watch sort of the studio films that they're very much sort of more in a straight jacket and very compliant to like the um, the American values and um, sort of the the inst- 
the the whole institution and establishment. Um, and you can just see, particularly like Dennis Hopper, he was in a lot of studio films. He's actually in um, one of my favourite films, uh, Warner Brothers film Giant with James Dean. Um, so he was in studio films. And then when I saw Easy Rider um, later on, you can just see the sort of freedom that they have. Um, and I think... Even though, obviously, I don't know 100% what it was like to be in the 60s, you can kind of sense that whole feel of getting rid of sort of the establishment and maybe not following necessarily the rules. You know, you're on the tail end of the civil rights movement and then you've got the Vietnam War. And I think, you know, Easy Rider sort of represents one of those films that's kind of like we don't always have to play to the rules. We don't always have to believe or comply to the American dream um, and even though you know I can't understand what it would be like in the 60s that does come across even to today yeah I mean it was, it's, it's like a bomb yeah know? a cultural yeah. bomb dropped in the late 60s like change is coming and here it is sort of yeah. thing yeah. What, what's interesting is that um, and in, in your notes for the talk Adam you've actually mentioned a couple of these titles mainstream Hollywood is actually changing as well mm. at this point and I, yeah. I I think you would have had to be there and had to be sort of following the releases of the films and seeing when things were coming out and what was being made at one, uh, alongside one another to see how they sort of influenced each other because I've not really worked out the timeline on this. But you've got stuff like, you, you've mentioned Point Blank and Bonnie and Clyde yeah. and there's films like The Wild Bunch mm. and they're all coming around out around this time and they're all major studio movies. you yeah, know. Yeah, but, yeah. And they're not being made by kids. But they've they've got the same sensibility yeah. as Easy Rider. Yeah. Well, I think that's I think that's a start of like I mean I guess nowadays when people say say oh it's an indie movie I don't think people really know the difference no. massively between what a Hollywood picture is and, a, and an indie picture. But mm. in the sixties. Yeah. You knew the difference. Yeah. You knew, you knew yeah. the difference. You could see it on yeah. the screen the difference. Well, you, you, you basically got your, you know, if, if it, you've got Paramount, Columbia, Universal, Warner Brothers, MGM, and, and if it's if it's not made by them, it's an indie film. Exactly. You know? yeah. 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 Whereas now, yeah, it, it, most films are indie films that get picked up by Paramount to be distributed. Yeah. So yeah. It, it was, I guess, the, the difference was stark back then. So you probably would know. Well, that's an indie. That's a that's a mainstream one. That's yeah. a, you know, and where the films played um, mm. fed into that as well, because you'd have drive-in cinemas, and you'd you'd have um, sort of you'd even have sort of indoor hardtop cinemas where the trash would play, mm. and indie and trash would would sort of pushed into the same category, you know, which this whole movement explodes yeah, now, you know. Yeah. But then you'd have your sort of, uh, your mainstream and your elite stuff and your Barbara Streisand films and your Oscar-winning musicals and stuff coming out in, in the big theatres. And, yeah. there were, yeah, there was a very, very clear, very marked mm. uh, difference. And then as we as we were talking about on an earlier podcast, you then got into the whole midnight movie thing. So you'd got this whole cult movie thing coming through, uh, where people like John Waters, who were making films for, for peanuts, yeah. could actually get their films shown in cinemas, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, we, talk, we talked about like uh, we talked about some of the independents, and, and that uh, it, it was quite a boom. I mean, one of the most successful independent movies of all time was made '68, uh, Night of the Living Dead, Night which is not something Dead. you would necessarily think of a new Hollywood film. Mm. But it embodied all of oh, that, you it know. Came it, along at the same time, um, yeah. And, and, and also, yeah. you know, it, it was a comment on Vietnam, yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> so we talked yeah. about that. So he was commenting on this, and and beyond that, you had people being able to tell different types of stories. 
I guess as part of the new Hollywood movement. Yeah. So you yeah. had like Night of the Living Dead, a, 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 a whole new take on what a zombie movie was. Yeah, yeah. But you could double bill that with Easy Rider because they've could... got they've got the same ending. <laughs> they, so they, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're, they're 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 telling the same story. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. One's, yeah. one's a zombie film. One's about hippies trying to sell drugs, you know, and trying to find themselves. They're they're pretty much the same story. Yeah, when yeah. it boils down to it, <laughs> and and a lot of these films were. It is down to this again. Rebecca's word, freedom, and and people wanting to protest things, and you know, in the wake of civil rights and all this in Vietnam and all the things we've already mentioned. You know, there's a lot in the air at that time, and there's this sense through the hippie movement that they can actually change stuff. You know, this sort of futile sense that oh yeah, we might be able to take over the world. You know, and that's actually reflected in some of the films as well. You know, yeah. where hippies do take over the world, and and what's interesting with the films where hippies take over the world is it doesn't work out well. You know. <laughs> um, there's, I can't, I can't think of a film where where that generation sort of uh, in the plot of the movie sort of gets power and then it all works out fine. You know, I don't think there is one. There are lots where it doesn't. You know, well, there's a quite, there's a quite a lot of a streak of nihilism running through a lot of uh, a lot of the new Hollywood films, which doesn't tend to to, to bode with happy endings. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. So we, we talked briefly about Bonnie and Clyde. One of the one of the books that I read in the nineties when I was getting into cinema and I was learning more about cinema and, and particularly cinema theory and, uh, and cine literacy and expanding my cine literature was uh, Peter Biskin's Easy Riders Raging Bulls. Fairly cheap, accessible book. Really easy to read in in a, in a sense that you just whack through it, no problem. And it boiled down the key moments. Now his take on it which appears, from, from what we've been discussing, is slightly different to our take on it, is that uh, Warren Beatty was the more driving yes, force yeah. mm-hmm. of New Hollywood, where we're thinking more Jack Nicholson. Mm-hmm. Um, what, 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 what's, your, what's your thoughts on that? I don't see it myself, I don't must admit. But... Yeah, I think uh, Warren Beatty was quite influential, particularly like Bonnie and Clyde, sort of, with that sort of crossover of the studio system. Like, I know that he was very influential in... in the making of Bonnie and Clyde um so yeah so I I do think he probably was one of the ones that was influential at the beginning but I think it's Jack Nicholson that sort of carried it on towards the I think Peter Biskin's right (laughs) and I think we're right I think Uh, uh, Nicholson and Beatty are both sort of core figures here but it's back to this major studio versus indie divide Mm. BT's the, the 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 corporate studios rebel yeah. Nichol, Nicholson's our rebel you know yeah. he's he's the mm. underground rebel because yeah. I mean BT obviously BT went on to do some big films in in, in the seventies the one one of my favourite films full stop is the Parallax View mm. and he's magnificent best, in that movie. best film of the seventies well me. there you go so, yeah. so so you know he's in he's in according to Tower Books in the best film of the 1970s <laughs> so how can we uh, marginalise such a, such all the, a character all the films are available yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. so so he obviously ha- he had a major role in shaping what the studio how the, I guess how the studios morphed and changed mm. to reflect yeah um, New Hollywood yeah because the Parallax View is an interesting uh, title to bring up there because that was part of a whole movement of sort of conspiracy thrillers mm. and this is around the time of Watergate happening absolutely you know? yeah so yeah. that's feeding into cinema as well and again would the major studios have dared do that 
five years earlier, you know, well, uh, remember, had it not been for Easy Rider and the Well, you think, well, five years earlier, they were making the Green Berets, yeah. you know, with, with John <laughs> Wayne. So, yeah. you know, it's like... so, so, and this, this is, even though these films are coming out made by Paramount or, or Warners or whoever, you know, there's a lot of ideas in, in mainstream big budget American cinema of that time, that early 70s period mm. that would not have happened without this movement that we're talking about. So an- another figure that I, I, I haven't actually put on this list that we uh, on our sort of like notes for, for the, the show today, but it occurred to me as I was thinking more of the series is Robert Evans, the producer, Very much, who yeah. uh, obviously he was, I guess, one of that sort of like countercultural wave of of, of like Jack Nicholson, yeah, yeah. and yeah, he was in charge of uh, Paramount. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, so he was producing. Yeah, well, he was like major Nicholson. films. He he he'd been a sort of failed actor in the late fifties, you know, yeah. and and it was like both of those guys. It was like, oh, Robert Evans, Jack Nicholson, you're both terrible. You know, you 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 mm. you'll never make it in the movies. You know, and then sort of fifteen years later, they're they're, they're, they're the two biggest guys in Hollywood. <laughs> yeah. You know? um, but yeah, Evans is a, a vital figure, you know, and uh, I, I suppose the, the the story to tell there is is about the the making of The Godfather. You know, Mario Puzo has done this sort of best selling novel. Hollywood wants to make it into a movie, and their thought is, you know, we need to get an Italian director, and Robert Evans is sort of behind that. You know, yeah, who, who's an Italian director in Hollywood? And of course, Corman has, has created one. You know, there's this guy called Coppola who. Mm. Uh, uh, who's, who by now is has got a foot into mainstream Hollywood himself. He's he's done Finian's Rainbow and he's done um, You're a Big Boy Now and he's done The Rain People, you know. And uh, so he's done the, the you know, Finian's Rainbow has been this sort of you know one of these great sort of bloated musicals that were popular at the time. The other films are very interesting, quirky little movies. Even though they've been made for a mainstream studio, mm. they've still got one foot in that indie sensibility. And then suddenly it's like oh. We're doing a mafia movie. It needs to be done by an Italian director. That's that's the the sort of myth. I, I yeah. don't know how true that story is, but that was uh, Rob Robert Evans was behind sort of giving Coppola that that job, which, as we know, then led to an amazing career for Coppola, mm. great success for the studio, arguably an even better sequel or a film that a lot of people see as being even better. Two years later, Coppola directing that. Apocalypse Now comes from that. Dennis Hopper comes back into the picture then. You know, this stuff all rolls round and around. And yet, Evans, certainly in terms of The Godfather, which is the film I know it best for, a vital figure. Mm. And, but yeah, he, like, like um, you, I mean, there is precedent for this because if you go back to people like Irving Thalberg in the 30s, you know, the, the, the studios weren't averse to, to taking guys who were sort of, you know, 32, 33, 35. And, and saying, yeah, you're in charge. Yeah, here's the keys, yeah. yeah. So that pretty much covers most of the birth of Hollywood. And then those films start winning awards. We talk, we've talked briefly about the about the, uh, um, the Godfather. But you have those Hollywood, I guess particularly the Hollywood studio pictures of the new Hollywood movement start to win awards, more so than the the indies like Easy Ride and... and those kind of pictures. Yeah, but what what tends to be happening there is is they're 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 doing what Robert Evans did on The Godfather. They're hiring yeah. Martin Scorsese and and De Palma, mm. 
and Hopper and all of these guys we've talked about to work for them and make a lot of these films. Yeah. Or even if it's not guys from that scene, it's people like Terence Malick who are sort of on the fringes of it who maybe haven't been given a break by Corman yeah. but are wanting to get into film. And Hollywood suddenly, as well as giving Robert Evans a chance as, as a sort of studio boss, they're, they're prepared to give young directors a chance on big budget projects, yeah. and, and that pays off at the box office, and it pays off at the at the awards. Well, look, just looking at the thing, I mean, I would say in 1971, you got Last Picture Show, which is uh, Peter Bogdanovich. Another Corman. Um, a Corman uh, uh, disciple. Yeah, 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 one of my favourite targets, uh, obviously, yeah, which yeah, is yeah. Um, brilliant, brilliant film. Yeah. A fascinating film in the way in in in. in in, in, in the history of it, really, I yeah, guess, with that yeah. film where um, Bogdanovich was given the opportunity to direct targets, uh, a small budget, but he also had five days, eight days with uh, Boris Karloff. Yeah, it varies from two yeah, to on five the to a week. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So he had a limited <laughs> amount of time with yeah. Boris Karloff. <laughs> and, again, and again, it's like what I mentioned about True Grit. You've, you've got new Hollywood meeting old Hollywood, yeah. and that's what the film's about. Exactly. And that's, and you, the, that's the topic of the yeah. movie. Well, that's the plot, isn't it? We obviously yeah, got yeah. The, the old horror star and the, the, the yeah, sniper, yeah. The, the new yeah, horror yeah. star. But they're, but they're sort of representing these... Old they're and they're, they're yeah. embodying these types of cinema, which yeah, is fascinating. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. And then, obviously... That was sold to Paramount, um, I believe, um, because it was too good a film for Corman to put out. <laughs> I, think, I think I think it was what I hope Bogdanovich tells it. Um, but, yeah, yeah. But Corman, to his to his credit, agreed and sold the film to, yes, to, yeah, yeah. to to Paramount, and then that led on to a relationship with um, that carried on with Last Picture Show, yeah, which yeah. Oscar winning film in 1971. Yeah. Um, then we get 1971, we get French Connection as well, yes, which yeah, yeah. again wasn't. Was a studio picture, but yeah. you had Freakin' directing. Yeah. Um, Who's another figure who who wasn't part? He wasn't part of the LSD trippy sort of Corman scene, but he was making films. He was sort of emerging at the same time as that. And again, he he got his own individual voice and he got things to say. So Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So yeah, French Connection. Obviously, then the the Godfather came in and swept the board. Uh, you had American Graffiti, which I'm not sure won Oscars, but it was definitely a, a, a big studio picture. Yeah, a massive box office A hit. massive box massive office hit. hit. Yeah. And at a time when you didn't really get that sort of thing. Yeah, that mm. really did literally pave the way for, for Star Wars yeah. later on because it, it was huge financially at a time when, when you, the, the idea of the notion of a film being a massive financial hit only really applied to Gone with the Wind and The Sound of Music. Yeah, you know? yeah. And suddenly, I think in the 70s, you started getting, oh, there, 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 there was like this unexpected audience that I think had first come out for Easy Rider, and then it was like, okay, there's What's this, next? There's this whole, <laughs> then, and I'm sure the executives and the, the, the studio heads were all sort of thinking... We we don't understand this. Where are all where are all these customers coming from? You know. Yeah. Well, that, well, that 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 line right there, uh, the studio saying we don't understand this, re- reoccurs throughout oh, yeah. cinema history, exactly. doesn't it? Exactly. So, um, but, but I think it's it, it, it typifies this 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 period of flux in the seventies, the fallout from the 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 the, the birth of New Hollywood. Mm. And the the way this fledgling sort of takes flight, and we've suddenly got Scorsese and Coppola making films for the big studios, you know. But being allowed again, it's this word freedom. Being allowed to do what they want and make mean streets and and make the conversation, you know, make these interesting films, which it all revolves around again, mean streets and the conversation could fit right into the French New Wave, Absolutely, you know. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. yeah. yeah. When we, you, talk, you talked about massive box office hits, obviously we get The Exorcist in 1970, yeah. Yeah. and the idea that a horror story like oh, yeah. that yeah. would be such a financial juggernaut. Yeah, just never, just yeah. never happened. I guess, I guess previously it was like, what, uh, Bride of Frankenstein, Frankenstein yeah. period, yeah. when it was like yeah. 1930s, yeah. Yeah. was the last time horror yeah. had such a and big impact. And, and the box office figures for those movies, you know, in, inflation, if, uh, yeah. if, if, if you don't adjust for inflation, you know, they took about $300,000 <laughs> yeah. or something, you know, that, that wouldn't have bought lunch on, no. on, on the set of, you know, the Blues Brothers or something. No, like exactly. Yeah. And then you got like Chinatown, Town, 1974, yeah. John Nicholson again. Which is Robert Town scripting Robert as well. Town. Come through the Corman School, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. And then you get like Conversation, of course, Coppola's follow-ups to Godfather, yeah. 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 One Flew Over the Cuckoo's yeah. Nest yeah. in 1975. Which is Jack interesting Nicholson. because that, that's a foreign director being um, Milos Forman, yeah. It harks back to the way it was done 20 years before, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 And then at the end of the, the, the sort of like political thrillers, uh, conspiracy thrillers of Pacula, All the President's yeah. Men in 1976. Yeah, yeah. Well, he, he did Parallax View as well, of and course. And Clint before that, yeah. So, so you've got that mini trilogy. This, this little trilogy. Almost parallels George Romero's zombie trilogy. Yeah. In, in the, you've got a little isolated story at the start, include, you know, which sort of parallels Night of the Living Dead. Mm. Then you've got the Parallax View, which sort of expands it a little more. And then you've got all the president's men, which is the biggie, you know. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and, and yeah, Romero's zombie films don't necessarily quite follow in terms of theme and the way they're they're sort of put together. But I think in terms of size, it's interesting how Romero's making these zombie films and and making them on making very political zombie movies. And you've got Pacula doing these um, sort of conspiracy movies, and he does the same. He does a little intimate one. He does this one that's a little bit bigger and widens the thing a little bit and leaves it hanging as to quite how wide it all is. And then you've got a film about Richard Nixon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Fa- fa- fascinating, fascinating trilogy. That that particular yeah. trilogy. Taxi Driver in 1976 and Raging Bull, I guess, in 1980. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the sort of like the big. Apocalypse Now, 1979, was, was a huge, huge yeah. uh, critical success. And again, Hopper's presence in Apocalypse Now is, is is fascinating for me because that ties this whole thing together. It makes Easy Rider and Apocalypse Now almost the, the, the bookend. You know? I think as far as mainstream viewers go, I think if they were looking at New Hollywood, you'd say, yeah, it, Easy Rider at one end and Apocalypse Now at the other, and they've both got Dennis Hopper in. The people who really delve into this stuff would take your parameters, I think, Adam, and say... Yeah, it probably starts in 1965 with with Monty Hellman uh, doing his sort of Corman financed westerns, you know, mm. and then it ends with sort of De Palma and Coppola, and you've got this new breed of people like John Carpenter coming through by then as well. In in sort of the early 80s, 82, 83, 84, it's sort of winding down a little bit. Okay, that was the end of part one of the Cinelit episode around the New Hollywood Movement. Uh, Join us for part two as we follow the final days of the New Hollywood Movement, um, how it fell from favour and how a series of very expensive flops brought the whole thing crashing down. Yes, join us for part two.